Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about bad graduation advice. Do what you love for a living. I have two words in response to the old notion of doing what you love for a living. And that phrase is this word prostitution. I graduated and uh, went into the newspaper business as somebody who had always loved to write going back as far as the early stages of elementary school. I can remember creating stories, anecdotes, situations, scripts, poems, just, you know, being actively involved, even in list making for want of a better word, writing and trying to create using words. So the notion that I had always heard most of my life was that, you know, the way to have success in the work world is to do what you love for a living. So knowing that I enjoyed writing and that I really loved to write, had some passion for it, I decided that that would be what I would pursue. And I think somewhere along the way of being at a university and taking multiple different uh, minor degrees and really not at all minding or objecting to the wide range of science coursework and humanities coursework that was required for the Bachelor of Science degree, because a lot of my fellow future journalists did. They really felt like they needed to be at the newspaper all the time and getting credit for all of that time and taking journalism classes, editing classes, layout design, that they wanted well over half their coursework to be in the journalism school. And, you know, a good journalism school will tell you that's not the way to go, that there is a certain amount of classroom instruction you need, but you actually need to spend as much time as possible in other coursework. And so I invested myself in that other coursework without ever really realizing that maybe the fact that I was so interested and engaged in things like political science and film uh, and religious studies was that those things were more interesting to me than the actual notion of writing professionally. And when I got into the um, latter stages of college and working in an internship and the beginning of my, you know, my work at a daily newspaper was that I found that the amount of time that I was spending every day writing at work doing writing for a living, even if it was just the copy editor side of the job where you're writing captions, you're writing headlines, you're rewriting in some cases, poorly written stories or stories that are simply inappropriately detailed for the amount of space that my newspaper might have given to a world or national story. When I got home at night, staring at a brand new typewriter that I got as a graduation present. Uh, now this tells you how long ago it was because it wasn't a computer or a word processor. There might have been good viable options there. But truthfully, this was a, at a point in computing when whatever computer I would have had at that point would not have survived to this day. But you know, this was a very nice typewriter it gave me the ability to, to italicize, you know, not effortlessly, but without a whole lot of effort. And it did store in memory um, pages that I'd type so that I could reprint uh, if I needed to. Well, again, not as good as a word processor, I couldn't open those files back up and, and make edits. Uh, the ability to edit and resave was not all that strong. But the reality is I didn't have that much use for the typewriter as it turned out because the way I word it and the describing it as word prostitution is the notion that I might present that if you actually were a gigolo for a living, 
and three, four, five, six times a day, you're having you know sex with people or you're engaging in sexual activities with people. Maybe the last thing you want when you get home after a particularly challenging day of work is to have somebody that you care about waiting for you to have sex with her. That the word prostitution takes all of that sort of you know sexual energy out of you. And this is kind of my experience. I would get home. Oftentimes, you know, because of the nature of the copy editor job late at night. So you're either waking up early in the morning and trying to start off writing for pleasure, knowing that you're going to have to stop at some point and go to work, or you're getting home fairly late in the evening and, again, saying, well, okay, it's midnight, 1, one thirty in the morning, and maybe I'm too wired to go to bed. You know, maybe that deadline pressure of hitting a daily newspaper deadline cycle has me pretty amped up. I still was looking at that typewriter saying, yeah. I'm not going to go there. And it's not like I didn't have projects. I wasn't dealing with writer's block. For one thing, I'd left a couple of very good friends behind at university, people who were either younger than I was who were pursuing master's degree studies and would have loved to have you know, written more than I did. I did send some letters, and I, I always type. I think better of the typewriter. I can generate more words more clearly that way than I can trying to handwrite. I know that for a lot of people... There's this notion that a handwritten letter has a certain amount of love and care poured into it, that if nothing else, that's charming. But for me, a handwritten letter is a chore that you give somebody that is akin to asking a, an archaeologist to decipher some hieroglyphics. Um, it's not loving. It's painful, both for me and for the person trying to read my handwriting. Maybe not from the first page or even the second page, but... You get to page three or page four, or you get to the second or third letter you're trying to sit down and write to people. It doesn't work. Typing much better. And I find myself being much more personal behind a keyboard. And I had things I wanted to do, you know, personal letters that I wanted to write to people. And one in particular to a friend of mine who lived in California at the time where we had been exchanging some very challenging, almost essays in the mail all the way through the latter part of my junior year, all the way through my senior year in college. And we're still writing these essays back and forth. And I had to, instead of sending her four, five, six pages at a time, I had to finally just say, I'm going to, once I get a couple of days off in a row, once I maybe get a little vacation time of some sort, I'm just going to have to sit down and try to put it all on paper. And I wrote a response that I thought would sum up all of my thoughts on the topic at hand. And it was, I don't know, 15 pages, one and a half spaced, standard margin, typewritten, very personal, um, quoting things that we'd cited before, uh, both personal and professional at the same time. But it took almost a year to produce it because of the word prostitution. I didn't have the energy to do what I truly loved as a labor of love because I was spending that energy doing what I quote unquote loved for a quote unquote living. It really didn't work. I have a friend who shared with me a speech he heard from a National Football League player who was a star at the university level, and he was giving a talk to college football players and their parents and friends and loved ones. And it was the standard message you'd expect a head coach who invites a former player to give. Stay in school. Don't come out early unless you know their circumstances are just unavoidable. And he wasn't being naive. If you have serious financial troubles, if you have a, a health concern or a parent who's in a very, very desperate situation, and you're going to be one of the first two, three players taken in the NFL draft and therefore command 
the top line, not just in salary, but also in bonus, it's awfully hard to say no to that. But his message to the next generation of stars and regular players at the university that he graduated from was don't leave the school in your pursuit for the bigger, better deal. That there's something about college football, even though it is undeniably a big business, and even though the college football player is undeniably where the rubber meets the road, in terms of where the greatest amount of effort is being expended for the least amount of direct financial reward, it's still a game. And that was the message. College football, for as difficult and challenging as it is, for the amount of work that goes into it, still a game. And you're not going to get all the way through your first season in the NFL. You may not even get all the way out of training camp in the NFL before your NFL experience, presuming you're successful enough to have an NFL experience. Your NFL experience is going to show you that it's not a game anymore. Suddenly what you're doing is you're going to work for a living. You've got a regular year-long, no-breaks training schedule, physical fitness, your physical condition is no longer something that you're personally trying to develop as an aspiration, but a requirement of you by an employer who has a right to have a say about how much you weigh, um, how many weights, how much pounds you can lift as a weightlifter, how many laps you've run. You suddenly no longer have that direct control over your own, your own physical regimen. And you don't really have any opportunity at that point to go back to school as a player and to go back into that camaraderie of that, that sort of common goal, even for as crazy, elusive, and pointlessly meaningless as the bowl championship series is, where college football doesn't really pick a champion. Big time college football doesn't truly hand a crown to the best of the best. There's still something more noble in that pursuit or something that's noble in a way you can't recapture when you're playing a game for a living, when you're cashing in a check. There's one other example I'd like to use before taking an examination of where this sort of misnomer comes from, because I didn't hear this uh, at high school graduation, necessarily, and I don't think that I picked it up at college graduation. I'd made these career decisions before I graduated from college, and I think the notion that I've got in my head goes all the way back to you know, elementary school, certainly before junior high school or middle school. But the other example that I'd like to use is from, I'm going to call it from the movie Dead Ringers, the David Cronenberg film starring Jeremy Irons as a uh, identical twin gynecologist brothers. And I'm going to quote the movie because I'm not 100% sure that this exact line of dialogue is in the book. I have both read the book and seen the movie, the book written by Barry Wood and Jack Geesland called Twins, a pretty good example of the movie fairly transcribing the action in the book. And in one scene, the perhaps more dominant, successful, at least successful with the ladies brother, He's rejecting his other brother's complaints about the uh, the difference in their workload, the difference in their tasks, the difference in their esteem and their success, for want of a better word. And the younger brother loses his temper and reminds him, I'm the one slaving over the hot snatches. I'm the one slaving over the hot snatches. While the other brother ostensibly is engaged more in a research type situation or in an administrator role in their gynecological practice. It's that notion of, 
you know, I, you hear comedians do this, and I wish I could cite the exact comedian I'm thinking of. But it's like, you know, again, a particularly tough day at work at a gynecologist's office. Maybe the last thing you want to see when you get home to your wife is, well, you can guess how the punchline goes. So where does this idea come from of you will be successful or you'll be happy if you do what you love for a living? You see, this sounds like better advice than it truly is, because at its worst, as I've described, you've got word prostitution, or you've got the person who jumps to the NBA before their college basketball experience is over, or bypasses college basketball altogether to go straight to the NBA. And you wonder if a, if a seemingly unhappy NBA player like LeBron James, and I'm going to guess that he's unhappy, he certainly had a challenging year in the way he's managed personal relations with lots of folks and you wonder you know to what degree he very quickly cashed in on the idea of playing a game that he loved and went straight into business because his goal was to be successful um, perhaps even successful at the expense of being happy and his departure from the Cleveland Cavaliers to the Miami Heat in such a well Cavalier way was all about the fact that you know, he was still pursuing success as the key to happiness. And if he couldn't achieve it organically within the team that he'd always wanted to play for, then he was going to go out and buy it if he could. That's my interpretation of that situation. And it all comes down to this idea of, well, I've got something that I'm really good at and I love doing it. So I'm going to cash that in and do it for a living. You wonder how long it would take some of these NBA players to get to the point where they can, after retirement, pick up a basketball, shoot a few hoops, and feel like it's recreation, and not still have that sense of work, or at least exercising, for want of a better word. Now, to me, the key is this. It's not about doing what you love. It's about loving what you do. You have to hold back some of the things that you have this intense passion for, this thing I love, as an intimacy you have to keep it yours. You have to keep it private. You have to make it not a matter of commerce, not a matter of daily survival. And even if it's just a hobby that you do, to protect the hobby, to take the word prostitution, make it go away, so that creating through writing becomes pleasurable again and not another chore or something that you've not exhausted your energy doing so that you no longer have the energy left to do it as a hobby or as an element of passion. But that's not the same thing as saying that you shouldn't love what you do. And I, you know, I'm not presuming to judge. There may be people out there who, quote unquote, do what they love for a living in every sense of the word. I can honestly say it's great. Um, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah, I know what I'm talking about from my own personal experience. And I know a lot of other people where the, the workload is based on a creative energy feel kind of the same way. I'm not alone here among my friends. I still think that the line is probably on this notion of, of loving what you do because you don't have to go to work every day performing on demand to get paid to do your personal passion. You do need to go to work every day to do something for which you have a great talent and an ability to contribute, or at least that you are developing a good talent and still have the ability to contribute in a meaningful way. And there's a good deal of satisfaction that can come from that, from loving what you do. There are jobs out there that no one in a million years would ever aspire to do for a living. When you're a little kid, uh, a little boy in particular, your dreams one day of maybe growing up to be an astronaut or a firefighter, you know, or an explorer or a police officer, 
or a professional basketball player or something of that nature. But just because you didn't aspire to be, you know, the, um, you know, receiving manager or the, you know, director of operations or a human resources vice president or any of those positions doesn't devalue those positions. And I don't believe that the majority of people who are extremely successful at what they do are people who don't love what they do. You've got to love what it is you do. The line there is between, you know, am I doing what I've always grown up wanting to do? Well, you know, there's not enough spots in the NBA for every kid who wanted to be an NBA player. We don't send that many astronauts up into space anymore, truth be known. And when we do, um, the total number is not not as big as every kid who grew up wanting to be an astronaut. You know, any of those sort of things. All of us have found a way to find a way to contribute and to do so in a way that is rewarding enough that it not only provides some financial security and some financial success – but it gives back that satisfaction of saying, yeah, I love my job. So here I am. For the first couple of years of, of my working career, I worked in a job that on paper I should have loved. But I didn't. Loved it more as a hobby than I would have as a career. But now I go to work every day absolutely loving what I do. Now, let's not be Pollyanna. Uh, it's frustrating on some days. I want to be more successful than I can. At least I want to be more successful more quickly than I can. And it's uh, work. They call it work for a reason, right? But I do go in knowing that, hey, I am good at this. I can make a difference doing it. And I enjoy making that difference. This is not typically the kind of message that you hear at a graduation ceremony. And all over the world today, we have hit the time of year when there is going to be one commencement speech after another. I had a friend who told me that he recently went to a commencement speech and loved the speech. And I was sort of awestruck by that because to me, I don't think I can count a single commencement speech that I've ever heard that I would describe as loving. There's a bit of a cookie cutter quality to them. You've got the same kind of audience. You often have the same kind of speaker. And I don't know what it means to say, Hey, I really loved that commencement speech. I have heard homilies given at wedding ceremonies that I thought were unbelievably, unbelievably good. I have heard, you know, sermons that I thought were a drudgery and sermons that I thought were brilliant, but a commencement speech, even the ones that don't really boil down to go out there and do what you love for a living, you know, have some inherent flaws and it's just in the nature of the style of communication. You've got one person communicating to a large number of people, maybe even a very large number of people. And his message is go out there and get them. Win one for the gipper. Do what you love. I disagree. I think the most important thing is to love what you do. And if you can exercise your passion in that manner, it does become infectious. You know, there's you know, in my work in retail, which I for many years worked in a retail record store, you could tell just by walking into a retail record store, either a competitor of mine or one of one of my peers, whether or not there was any passion in that store. Did the store itself, and, and it all goes, it all boils down to the manager at the end, um, really care about finding out what people wanted, making sure they had it, getting that person the item at the best possible price? Did, was there any passion in that process? Were the stores on the other end of the extreme not even interested in finding something when the customer actually did them the huge favor of saying, this is what I'm looking for? Here in a minute, I'll talk a little bit about that whole record store mentality. And it applies to bookstores as well. I'm sure it applies across retail. 
Can you find out what the customer wants? And if you don't have it, can you get it? How does that work? But before I go there, I think I want to introduce our different drummer as somebody who I think both epitomizes the idea of having a great deal of passion for what he did. So perhaps loving what he did for a living. And the reason I suggest that is he was only able to keep that up for 10 years or so before he had to chuck it in. It may be hard to imagine this in the internet era, but when I was a kid, if you wanted to learn about a big new topic, something that you just discovered, you kind of had to go to the library to accomplish that. And I can remember as a kid going to the library, maybe riding my bike over, maybe getting dropped off and heading to the reference section because I had discovered rock and roll music. The rock and roll radio station in the town that I grew up had a program every weekend, usually Friday nights, I believe, but it might have been Saturday or Sunday, where they would play full-length albums. Back then, the album was the language that we would use, back to back to back. And I often wonder now, when I look back on it, having worked in the record industry for a while, how the record labels felt about that. Because to me, often the record labels are just as interested in stopping radio stations from playing songs as they are interested in encouraging radio stations to play songs. And what I mean is that if you're the radio station playing the brand new CD and you pick the song that they don't want you to pick, if you don't help them make the hit they want made, you're kind of persona non grata. You can be regarded just as lowly by that record label for playing the wrong song as you can for playing none of the music on the new release at all. And so this uh, radio station, of course, they're playing old classic rock. It was a classic rock station. Would play five or six, uh, seven, sometimes albums back to back. And you'd have, you know, 20 minutes of solid, uninterrupted music with a very long commercial break between the quote-unquote sides of the album and a long commercial break with news and other sort of things between the albums. And you'd have, you know, a nice, solid five, six hours of music that way. And it's because of this program that I became aware of bands that I'd never heard before, or at least not heard in any great detail. And it really inspired for me a great deal of interest in learning more about rock and roll music. Now, this led me to my brother's record collection, my parents' record collection, conversations with friends, but it also led me to the library. And this may be a very nerdy thing to talk about doing, but I can remember sitting in the library with what I'm going to guess is maybe a Rolling Stone record guide or a, you know, one of those sort of A to Z encyclopedias of rock, where the entire uh, book is just an alphabetical listing of rock bands with a short history of the group, a description of their albums, maybe a a discography of some sort, key band members, and cross-references and places there to other bands that same band member has played in. You get some of the more complex groups in rock history. You get a lot of cross-pollination where you can go, you can make a a very easy diagram from the band Yes to the band The Moody Blues uh, from only one member alone. And, And there are groups out there like King Crimson, which had so many different lineups and lineup changes. And those lineups have had things in common with ex-members of Roxy Music and other sorts of things that you get this interesting tree of rock. And so I was, uh, I would just sit down and just start reading. And 
you know, the first trip through the book A to Z, you sort of, you know, find the bands you know, so you can get a sense of the writing style, get a sense of whether they feel the same way about groups that you do, or if they have a different perspective. Maybe stop along the way at some of the bands you've recently discovered. Um, so did you hear the group Spirit for the first time on this radio station the weekend before? Well, you can find out more about Spirit by stopping there. But I would go through this book multiple times because it was in the reference section of the library and it could not be checked out. Uh, all the books in the library were available for checkout, you know, one, two week checkout cycles, but not the encyclopedias, not the magazines. And um, for whatever reason, this rock and roll encyclopedia fell into that same category. It wasn't a book that at least the local library close to me was going to allow me to take home and read. And so I really learned a lot about rock and roll that way. And it ties back a little bit to the store experience where if you think about the phonolog, which the record stores used to have, these sort of yellow golden paged, you know, manuals one after another, usually, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten of them in the store. But those were more like a phone book. They didn't have the detail. They weren't descriptive. They might tell you a song and who the songwriters were and which albums it was on, what the album artist was, the name of the album, the year. It would have that kind of detail. But it wouldn't go into any of the why the band broke up kind of conversation that I was getting from this rock and roll encyclopedia. Well, I give this big, long introduction to our different drummer to say that Ira Robbins is the greatest rock encyclopedia writer of all time. He's perhaps by people older than me, known as the uh, editor of a music magazine called the uh, called Trouser Press. But I know him as the book editor of a document called the Trouser Press Record Guide. And I think even today, TrouserPress.com is out there with a lot of the reviews that Ira Robbins and the people that he edited, the people he collaborated with over the years, um, are available online. To me, the thing that made Trouser Press so special and Ira Robbins' contribution to rock history so important was unlike the mainstream guide that I was reading through A to Z, Trouser Press specialized in giving the same kinds of history and background and discography for bands that the major record labels wanted nothing to do with, that your local top 40 or classic rock radio stations would never play, and that the magazines of the time weren't interested in covering either. You would almost not see any articles by bands like Skayfish or even Sonic Youth outside of what we might describe as a fan zine. In fact, when I was uh, in college and the Violent Femmes had kind of exploded in popularity, you really, even at the height of their popularity, weren't finding a whole lot of mainstream press about them either. So Ira Robbins came in filled this gap. And I can remember, I still have the book to this day. In fact, I'm holding right now in my hands, the fourth edition of the Trouser Press Record Guide with a publication date or a republication date of 1991 from Collier Books Macmillan Publishing. And I still have the receipt from the bookstore you know, where I picked it up. $18.95 retail plus tax in 1992. Part of the reason I kept the receipt was is that I purchased this book for use in the record store to help cover for the gap where Phonolog wasn't going to answer questions and where Billboard magazine wasn't going to answer questions. And even if you carried not just Rolling Stone, but also Spin magazine, where Spin had you know kind of presumed to step up and cover the territory that Trouser Press actually paved 
it wasn't necessarily going to be enough. It wasn't going to be encyclopedic enough for you to help a customer find something within the pages of the book. But I kept the receipt, didn't expense the purchase, because I knew that if I ever left the record store, I was taking the book with me. That it was going to be a possession of mine that was available for store use, but only for so long as I was at that particular location. It was going to travel with me from store to store. To give you a little bit of sense, I'm just going to use one quick example to give you a sense of what the Trouser Press record guide had in it. Because we're talking about, again, published in the very early 90s. This uh, particular fourth edition was probably originally published even five years sooner than that. But this is a book where you can find the Beastie Boys before we were really talking mainstream about rap, uh, alphabetized in between Bauhaus and the beat. And by the beat, in this case, I mean the English beat. I would have known them as the English beat, but... um, in England, they were you know just the beat, and so you've got that kind of mix where you can have um, sort of uh, a gothic sort of an alternative rock back to back with the beginnings of rap or a rap sort of alternative rap band back to back with all you know second wave ska. These were the kind of things that were being covered. Ira Robbins had a group of you know more than a dozen, probably dozens of writers and reviewers helping speak about the groups, to go A to Z and cover hundreds of pages of information about these bands. But he was also a writer and contributor himself. And before I kind of you know jump into an anecdote, let me just share a little bit of, of his writing and his writing style, because I think he's he really is a very good rock critic as well, and not just somebody who had a dream to publish um, something that was going to be fanzine in spirit, but actually... Um, a real rock magazine at the same time. His review of Jim Thurwell's musical alter ego, Fetus, is one of the one, one of my favorite passages in the entire book, and one that I would refer some of my employees to if they would get confused. Even um, a few years earlier, when I was working in the uh, in the college newspaper, you know, editing the entertainment page, sort of resurrecting the entertainment page, because believe it or not. For a while, when I was at university, we had a college newspaper that wasn't covering entertainment in a formal way. It was hard for me to get my head around a university newspaper not having an entertainment section. But we we brought that thing back. But the problem that I had for a while there was my music critic was very much Bon Jovi in terms of her musical taste. And she felt that Bon Jovi was, was rock, hard rock, maybe even metal, and that everything that was a little bit beyond there was hardcore or punk. So she had this mentality that there was something underground, independent, hardcore about you know the cult. But she also might have felt the same way, truth be known, about people like Def Leppard. Had I been working with her at the time that we began to see groups like Warrant or Skid Row, I think she would have considered that to be beyond the pale. She didn't have an appetite for... Metallica or Megadeth or any of those sort of distinctions to understand kind of where the heavy metal side of it was. And she kept referring to some of these things as being punk, which really aggravated me. So at one point, I just got so frustrated that, you know, after a uh, collaborative session, we left the newsroom, went back to my apartment, and I played for her bands like Black Flag, Dead Kennedys, Social Distortion, you know, stuff like that, and said, you're you're using terms to refer to something which is not these guys and these bands, Bad Brains, people like that, are the right group for you to be describing in those terms. We sort of attacked the terminology a little bit and tried to get her to broaden her palette, but also at the same time to, to reel it in a little bit and understand that there was nothing all that metal about Bon Jovi, and there was certainly nothing all that, quote-unquote, 
hardcore do-it-yourself, minor threat style in the cult. That there was a difference there between the two, uh, much as I enjoy the cult, more than Bon Jovi anyway. So um, a passage like this would have been very helpful in that conversation because I don't think she had any concept of what to do with groups that were even beyond there in terms of being either industrial or fully experimental. I don't know how she would have begun to classify something like Severed Heads, which would have been you know, a band coming into existence at the time, but off our radar screen. And so here's how Ira Robbins describes Fetus. Thank goodness for rock and roll. Otherwise, what hope would there be for people like Jim Thurwell, a.k.a. Clint Ruin, scraping Fetus off the wheel, Fetus Uber Frisco, Philip and his Fetus vibrations, you've got Fetus on your breath, Fetus art of terrorism, etc. Although enormously talented and possessed of a wide and masterful sonic palette, it's virtually impossible to pin down just what the Australian-born, English-launched New Yorker does. Suffice to say, his projects are all characterized by violence, intensity, irreverence, abrasion, unpredictability, and an incredible grasp of music making's never-ending possibilities to disturb. The only thing to do with Hole, Fetus's first American release, is to jump in and pray you survive. The LP has a little bit of everything. Industrial cacophony, high political drama, spare crypto blues, demented surf music, and something sick built on a swing beat. This is his description, and an accurate description, of scraping Fetus off the wheel. And, in particular, the last part I shared, the album Hole, which was the first album by this group that I heard, and would set the standard that I would later come to think of this band as being almost industrial unplugged. They were industrial before we even heard of Nine Inch Nails or um, any of the other groups that we consider now to be giants in the industrial scene or pioneers in the industrial scene, coming after Throbbing Gristle and some of those other groups, but coming well before what we would consider to be the uh, the network of industrial revolution. And this is you know Ira Robbins with his own writing, with his own point of view about the band um, Fetus. What I would do in the stores... I describe myself as a very brutal interviewer because the store process for me was all about trying to make sure that we were able to take care of customers who might come in with a very popular, mainstream, easily identified request with almost no information. I worked for a while in bookstores, and to me that was the most frustrating because you'd have someone walk into the store and say, hey, I saw this author on Larry King Live about five or six months ago, and I've just finally made it into the store to look for her work. So do you remember her name? No. Do you remember the name of her book? No. Do you remember what the book was about or her topic? No. But she was really a strikingly beautiful redhead wearing a stunning green dress. Yeah, I can't use redhead and green dress to help you find the book you're looking for. At least with music, you would you know, either have, you know, well, what kind of radio station did it play on? If you saw a video on MTV or VH1, maybe we could describe the video. The, you got a little better odds there than just um, a book interview on C-SPAN. You know, there's very little chance that I'm going to be able to help there. But the problem that you have a lot of times in a record store environment is that you're going to naturally be hiring people who are more inclined to help 
with things that are either the same as their musical taste. So they're a heavy metal fan or they're a country music fan. And they're going to be very capable and very eager to help people who like the same kind of music. Or they're going to be good with top 40 or classic rock. Because those are the things that are going to be covered well by the media. And how do you find whether the person that you're going to put on the sales floor who may perceive their job to be only marginally important, a quote-unquote minimum wage job, how do you make sure that that person is going to be able to take care of the person whose tastes are truly eclectic? Because I'll tell you something about the customer with eclectic taste. A customer who has genuinely eclectic taste is a customer who is very likely to be both loyal and big spending. Because if I had something that I knew was hard to find and severely underappreciated and found a store that could provide me an outlet for that. Of course, nowadays, it will probably be an online store. But if you could find a store that would provide you the outlet for that, they could get you the music you love and were very eager to do it, you'd pretty much be willing to pay retail to get it. So what we would do is we would go through a couple of exercises, which I'll just share as a way of saying, you know, my appreciation, not just for the Trouser Press Record Guide as a book, and previous to my knowledge, a magazine, but to the kind of work that Ira Robbins was doing and the passion that he would bring to what he was doing um, was the way I would do the interview process. So first, let me share some thoughts from Ira Robbins to kind of give you a kind of a focus on why I think he's on the same page with me about this. There's an online uh, interview on rockcritics.com by Stephen Ward, where he starts off with this, uh, with this interesting sentence. If anyone out there has a million dollars and wants to start a music magazine, please let Ira Robbins know about it. Robbins, the co-founder and co-editor of Trouser Press, has said that a million dollars would be the only way anyone could talk him into running a music magazine again. Basically, Ira Robbins saying he would need somebody to put up the money and to take care of the business operations, but to leave him completely alone as the editor of a magazine where he wasn't having to answer either to a, a boss with a set of financial requirements, but he also wouldn't have to answer to the record labels. Midway through that interview, Stephen Ward says this, For those who don't know, Trouser Press was started because you wanted to cover bands that mainstream rock mags were ignoring. This turned out to be a lot of British rock and progressive rock bands in the mid-70s. As time went on, non-mainstream acts turned into punk, new wave, alternative wing, during the magazine's last few years, did you consider yourself for the magazine a champion of alternative bands or just scribes who were chronicling the bands that were non-mainstream? Robbins answered this way, It's nice of you to use the verb champion, since that is exactly the reason why we put out the magazine. At the outset, our view of what mainstream rock magazines were overlooking included history as well as obscurity. So we latched onto the past namely British invasion bands, as well as pub rock, prog rock, and assorted marginal artists few publications cared about. But we were hardly doctrinaire about it. And then he goes on to describe the groups that they would support, and uh, even bands that they were trying to support and publicize that they didn't really actually like, because they felt that it was important for these bands that were being ignored, marginalized is the right word for it, would have a voice. If you were to be interviewing in a record store that I was running, back in the time that there actually were record stores, the first interview would go pretty well, and fairly quickly. I could conduct an effective first interview in less than 10-15 minutes, because all I really needed to know from that first interview was a sense of who you were as an applicant, your eagerness to do the job, 
your motivations to do the job, and then a lot of stuff that was on the resume or on the application form that I needed to hear from you directly. Why did you leave your previous place? Do you have available transportation? What are your long-term plans? How would things like school or other issues impact your ability to work? Were you planning to get a job in a mall at a mall record store without any real willingness to work on Friday nights, Saturdays, and Sundays? Kind of the process of weeding out, right? And then if I really had a position that I was committed to, now seasonal help is a different matter. You might have a much more quick and open standard during the time of year when you're only bringing people on for about a month. But if I was trying to hire a permanent position, and to be honest, I was pretty strict about even the seasonal spots, that second interview could go on. In fact, the the more convincing that I needed, if I had subtle doubts, if I needed to hear more from you as an applicant than I was hearing, I had, I had second interviews that would go on for an hour. Wouldn't shock me if I actually had something that went on for longer than an hour. And a lot of times, you'd get to that first day of doing orientation for a candidate, you'd find a lot of the things that you want to cover, just strictly from the simplistic customer service mindset, um, had already been introduced just in the process of asking questions and getting answers in a second interview. But here's a couple of things that I would do. I would introduce a band. Actually, I wouldn't even tell them it was a band. I would ask the person to engage in the hypothetical situation behavior kind of outcome, but a hypothetical example of what you would do if you were working in my store, representing me, representing your fellow coworkers, and a customer came in saying that they were looking for flipper. What would you do with that? How would you interact with the customer? Ultimately, I can tell you where this is going to end. It's going to end at the trouser press record guide. But before I would get to the point of there, the candidate would have to work through, are you looking for a, a movie or, a, or something else? Because the first thing most people think of when you say flipper, they think of the television series with the friendly dolphin, right? But in this case, it wouldn't take long to work through that they were looking for a band, that it was a band that they'd heard, and they had no idea how to categorize it. I mean, it wasn't country or easy listening, but they didn't know whether it was rock. They didn't know whether it was metal. They didn't know whether it would be alternative rock. They had no idea. And maybe they'd only heard a little bit, and maybe the music that they heard was instrumental. So they didn't know any lyrics. So they didn't know any song names via, via the lyrical connection. And it would just be a matter of trying to get the individual to ask me enough questions to where they could get enough information to know that they can't answer this on their own. This is a little bit like what Christians do during the time of Lent by giving up something and kind of orienting your mind to the idea that, yes, I don't have the ability to do this by myself. At some point, I wouldn't have to ask for help. I wouldn't hire anybody who in the process of doing an interview, you know, answering these types of questions wouldn't get to the point of asking for help. And instead of making it easier on them and say, yeah, by all means, ask one of your coworkers, I would ask them what kind of resources they want. What would you do? What would you look for? And again, we didn't have the internet in the stores back then, so most customers would probably only think that the books they had available to them would be the big phonologue books, and they, that might be enough. You might be able to go to a phonologue book, look up the band, find out there was a group named Flipper, um, if they were in phonologue, which maybe they wouldn't be. But you get to the end of that process, and to me, the end of that process comes down to, um, wouldn't it be great if there was a book that would give you the history of a group like Flipper? And their connection with other bands like Negative Trend and Any Three Initials and what the band Any Three Initials even meant and Flipper's albums, you know, uh, Blowin' Chunks Live or Gone Fishing. But 
the generic Flipper album from 1982 being perhaps the best example, where there's the Trouser Press record guide that walked me through some of the things that I had albums by Flipper and didn't really know the whole story that Flipper felt slighted and objected to the idea that Public Image Limited would take their generic album cover art design and essentially replicate it several years later for their own purposes. And then when you know uh, Flipper later made their first their first big live album, a double live album, they named the live album Public Flipper Limited as a slap back toward PIL. And ultimately, when a couple of band members went off to do a side project, they named themselves any three initials. Again, a shot at Public Image Limited. This information requires you to have some knowledge about the Sex Pistols and Johnny Rotten, uh, a.k.a. John Lydon, and Public Image Limited, and Flipper, and that band, and its history. These are the kinds of things that I would walk through and the kinds of employees that I wanted. You're not going to hire people who know everything already. In fact, that's impossible. But you do have to put people in a store who care about what the customer wants. And Ira Robbins was one of the best resources I ever had because I had on a shelf in my store somebody who was willing to be a champion for the kinds of artists that Billboard magazine or maybe even the phonologue itself would not give any trail to. You're not going to see them listed. You're not going to hear about their history. Their latest information isn't even going to make the small print in the back. And um, for that, I'm very thankful to Ira Robbins for exercising his own passion. But as a caution, I'm going to share, just as a closing thought in a minute, what he said about the end of the road. So what happened at the end of the Trouser Press as a magazine? It went something like this in Ira Robbins' own words. It wasn't just the money. Really, it was the feeling of powerlessness that the enterprise we'd put so much of our lives into could so easily be derailed by another company's incompetence or bankruptcy or the record industry suspicion that print advertising wasn't of any real use to them. It was a tough and lonely battle externally and internally. And we didn't learn until it was over how many people we were important to. Having started out so small and informal, we never grew into the well-run organization, although we got our work done and seemed on top of things. How we did it was pretty much slapdash. When I look back at old issues, they look and read better to me than I remember them from the creative side. It was that kind of experience, hard to watch the food being prepared but tasty once it got on the table. In other words, I would describe Ira Robbins' words, paraphrasing it for my own purposes, as being, you're not going to be long-term successful if you take what you love and try to do that for a living. There's too much invested in it. It's too personal. It's too intimate to see that ultimately being uh, unsuccessful or at the very least compromised by other things that are beyond your control. And at the same time, though, he managed to love what he did enough to produce a book that is, you know, probably of all the uh, encyclopedias that I've ever owned, the one paperback, A to Z record, that I'm not likely to let the Internet replace. There's not a single review in the Trouser Press Record Guide, 4th edition, that I could not probably find online. The exact reviews, in fact, originally published in the Trouser Press books. There's something about this particular book, though, that's incredibly special to me. 
It's a lot about me understanding what this labor of love can do and how it taps into um, what you might describe as the nerdy interest of a kid in a library learning about rock history by literally reading A to Z. So you were doing what yesterday? I was playing Oblivion for 12 hours straight. That is the most awesome thing I've ever heard in my life. I'm still working on it. I'm the obsessive compulsive type that likes to explore every cave, every mm-hmm. nook and cranny of every mountain, every city, every back alley. Yes, I you know. You know what I like? What? Civilization and a bottle of wine. <laughs> Whole day. That, that to me would be heaven. Because as I've said before, I can't play Civilization every day, but I could play it for a whole day. If you had a bottle of wine. If I had a bottle of wine. <laughs> Otherwise, would just you play keep, it? <laughs> not like to get drunk, but just to play, have a nice little, you know. It's like a good book. Just like, Yes. Yeah. That's exactly what it is <laughs> for me. You know? And always think that I might play aggressively and then I never do. <laughs> because like, the wine mellows you out. <laughs> because the wine mellows me out. It's the most, it's awesome. It's just a really great way to spend a day. (laughs) I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And when you're not listening to this glorious podcast, we would love to have you listen to ours, the Anomaly Podcast. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. And show notes are enabled at the website, inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. Thanks for listening.